Well, welcome to Fellowship, and especially let me say a welcome uh, to the seniors and their families. Um, if you're visiting with us I'm here today, I am in the middle of a series in which I'm going through every book of the Bible. I've done 14 messages so far covering all of the historical books. Today, I'm going to step in to the poetic wisdom books. I'll talk about the distinction between that in just a minute. But there's a reason that I'm doing this. There's a reason that I'm going through each individual book, and it has less to do with me and us as a community sitting in this room, and much more to do with you and your personal time in God's Word. Uh, Recently, I heard a message that really captured a lot of this, uh, and and I want to play a portion of a message from Dallas Seminary's chapel a few weeks back when Jen Welkin was there, and she was talking, and she really, um, the whole message, it's it's worth looking at, just... uh, Google DTS Chapel Jen Wilkin, and you can get the whole message. But I'm going to play you a portion of it that really captures um, why I'm doing the series that I'm doing, going through each individual book. So watch this. And so um, I found in my early years of adulthood that I had sat in these seats and listened to someone stand up here holding the same book, and teaching it in very different ways. And that was a concern to me. Because what I didn't have was first-hand knowledge of this text. So I was always taking someone else's word for it. It doesn't mean that the things that I was hearing from all those different people were wrong. But it meant that I really had no way to know whether one person's read on things was correct or not. Because I didn't have first-hand knowledge of the text. And that's actually what the false teacher and the secular humanist are relying on, right? They want to be able to take a verse from here and a verse from here and put it together however um, they choose. Or they want to be able to question a particular passage where you don't have enough context to know whether they've questioned it in the right way or not. And so people like that have been extremely able to rely on our ignorance of the text and to play on it. And I think that we are seeing the results of that in a big way in the church. So I began to have a developing commitment to Bible literacy, simply that people would just know what the Bible said. And at that point, I'm entering into what I affectionately call the pink ghetto of women's ministry. And and I realized that what women are being resourced with almost exclusively are topical studies that hit them at the feelings level. That's it, man. And it used to just be in the pink ghetto, but in the years since then, I have seen it spread into the church at large. Topical studies that hit you at a feelings level. Now, there's nothing wrong with topical studies. We need topical studies, but topical studies assume that you have a base level working knowledge of the text. If they don't, that's terrible. But a topical study takes on the color and the depth that it should when you actually know the Bible. Uh, Unfortunately, what I found was that when you have an exclusive diet of topical or devotional content, which I would say is the normative experience of women in the church, and in many cases men, it means that you could spend your entire existence in the church thinking that you've gone to a Bible study only to find that you don't know the Bible. And what we increasingly were seeing were people who were curators of other people's opinions about a book that they did not trouble to read and did not know how to read. And that is where we find ourselves today. So in addition to the comment on women's ministry being the pink ghetto, which I think is hilarious, (laughs) I want to highlight two things Jen said. 
we've become people in the church who are curators of other people's opinions about a book they did not trouble to read, nor did they know how to read. She goes on in the message to say this is coming back uh, to bite us. Because we've got so many people who don't know how to read the Bible, and all they've heard is opinions from people like me up front telling them how they should live and trying to connect that in a relevant and in an uh, emotional way, and they've dismissed it as not having authority. Um, she says that the solution to this, and I believe she's right, is firsthand knowledge of the text. And that's the whole purpose of this entire series is to equip you and give you the context to engage in your own personal Bible study, in your families, in your, um, in your bedrooms as you are reading the Bible at night, in your breakfast nooks as you are reading the Bible in the morning, to give you the tools for you to have firsthand knowledge of the text. And that's why we're going through this series. We're making a transition today into two different areas of the Bible. The first section is the poetic literature. We've done 17 historical books, a couple of them we have combined, in 14 messages to cover the historical narrative of the Old Testament. So by the way, for the most part, maps are kind of in the past. We're not going to deal with very many maps in the future uh, until we get to some of the prophetic literature. But we're now in the poetic literature um, that uses the language and the issues of the heart and the soul. These are the books that connect with our soul issues. Um, The poetic books, as we look on our timeline, is this group of books right here in the middle. Um, They are connected to the historical books, but they're connected in a a kind of an ambiguous way. It's hard uh, to see how they connect in the way our English Bibles are arranged. But they're all packaged together in one section. And the poetic books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, because all of those five books are poetic in their arrangement. Um, There are short narratives throughout, but for the most part, they are arranged poetically. But one book, the book of Psalms, comes out because um, it is a little bit different in that it's poetic, but it is not wisdom literature. So there's a second category I'm introducing here. We're moving into poetic books, but we're also moving into, apart from the book of Psalms, what is called the wisdom literature. Now, we need to understand what the wisdom literature is. By the way, the wisdom literature are these books right here, um, apart from the book of Psalms. Now, the arrangement of all of this, I I wasn't there and didn't get to vote, uh, but there's an interesting way that these books are all arranged. Um, And Job probably comes first because historically it's probably the oldest. You're going to see that in just a little bit. Then Psalms would come next historically because of its connection to David. And then the other... Uh, three wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, are connected historically next to the life of Solomon. If I were to arrange them in a more theological way, what I would do is I would have put Proverbs first, because Proverbs gives the general rules, and then Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, they give kind of the exceptions to the rule, or more of a focus on things. But I wasn't there, I didn't get the vote, so we're going to handle them in the order our uh, English Bibles put them in. And wisdom literature is dealing with life in the creation theater. Life in the here and now in just how we deal with life. It's not dealing with these big truths that God has this um, story he's unfolding. 
And, and he's showing us all along the way that man can't fix his own problems. That's the historical narratives. This is now, given that that's the case, how do we live in what I call the creation theater? How do we live in the here and now, the world that, that, that we are now living in? How do we handle ourselves there? Alan Ross says this, The wisdom that directs life is the same wisdom that created the universe. They go together. The creator is the, guy, is the one who is guiding us through this. So to surrender to God's wisdom is to put oneself in harmony with creation and the world around you. And the book of Proverbs kind of does that. The book of Proverbs sets that out for you and says, here's how you arrange yourself in harmony with the world. And it is doing that with what is called wisdom. The, the, the Hebrew word wisdom, chokmah, and I'm going to use it because it has a special nuance to it. Chokmah, wisdom in the Old Testament, is skill, it's craftsmanship, um, it's especially living life in a, in a fine-tuned application of knowledge and expertise so that you become a craftsman of your life and you leave something worthwhile behind. Um, it, it is used of the craftsmen working on the tabernacle. They had chokmah. They had skill to do all of the things they needed to do. It's used of mariners who have a skill in how they can guide themselves through the waters. It's used of a counselor who's giving advice. They have skill. They, they, they're well-equipped for what they are doing. Um, Bruce Waltke says this, As the course in bulk of biblical wisdom, the book of Proverbs, which is the bulk course of biblical wisdom, remains the model of a curriculum for humanity to learn how to live under God and before humankind. To the uncommitted youth, it serves as a stumbling stone, but to committed youth, it is a foundation stone. The wisdom of God that says, love God and love others, um, that is a stumbling stone to youth. Uh, to those who are naive and who are trying to make their way in the world apart from the fear of the Lord, they're going to see that as foolishness. They would, are going to say, don't love God and love others, love myself. But if you understand what's going on in the world and you can align yourself with God, you're going to align yourself with these principles. In the book of Proverbs, again, it's the standard. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom signifies skillful living, the ability to make wise choices and live successfully according to the moral standards of the covenant community. The one who lives skillfully produces things of lasting value to God and the community. That's what a, the book of Proverbs is written to do. Edward Curtis says this, the goal of biblical wisdom is practical and its focus is application and skill. It's not just knowledge, it's putting it into action. To really have hokma, you're not just smart, you're a craftsman with your life. The paradigmatic perspective of the Old Testament demands that a person act on this knowledge rather than just processing it cognitively. Again, Alan Ross says, all of the observations in the biblical wisdom literature, including those that have had their origin in human observations in the world, because other people have wisdom literature, by the way. Don't let that rattle you. There's other wisdom literature out there. The wisdom of Amenhotep, some scrolls that were discovered in the 1800s, those scrolls are very similar to the book of Proverbs, but God putting that wisdom into the scripture gives it inspiration, and it means that it's sacred, and now it's binding upon us. So the wisdom books, I'm pulling Psalms out of here because it's poetic. We're going to deal with it the next time we get together. The wisdom books work like this. Proverbs first gives us the skill for everyday living. The world works this way, but Job says, wait a minute, <laughs> There are sometimes it doesn't work this way, and, and Job is going to deal with the skill of suffering when you don't know why the world isn't working the way it's supposed to work. 
Ecclesiastes is going to give us the skill of navigating meaning in the real world when it doesn't seem like there's meaning there. It doesn't seem like it's consistent. Proverbs says it's consistent. And if you're smart, you're going to live by Proverbs, but you're going to know there are some exceptions. And then there's a particular focus on, and how do you live this out in marriage? Because that's a real challenge for how we do that. So within this wisdom framework of how to practically live out your life, we're going to focus on the book of Job. I'm going to introduce it to you, tell you why it's in a story, and then we're going to roll it, run through it really fast. Bruce Wilkins says, says this, The book of Job begins in heaven with a conversation between God and Satan, then moves to earth for a detailed look at the life of an ancient patriarch named Job. Overnight, Job's blessings dissolve into heartache as he suffers the loss of his health, wealth, family, and status. Life in the turmoil over his sudden change of fortune, uh, left in the turmoil over his sudden change of fortune, Job seeks an answer to the question, why? Four human counselors are unable to provide the insight Job desperately needs, and that's the bulk of the book, is people trying to figure it out for Job. Finally, it remains for Yahweh to teach Job some valuable lessons on the sovereignty of the God and the need for complete trust in the Lord who is constantly at work behind the scenes. That's Job. Dan Estes puts it this way. The writer of Job so masterfully combined grand themes with exquisite language and intricate structure that the book is rightly regarded as one of the best literary texts ever written. It does not fit any specific literary type. Rather, it combines the best of Proverbs, hymns, laments, nature, poetry, and legal rhetoric into a unique and brilliant composition. It's an amazingly put-together book. Um, it has narrative at the beginning, narrative at the end, lots of debates and poems in the middle. It's got um, all kinds of really great observations. He goes on to say this. A major purpose of the book is to demonstrate that while retribution is true as a general pattern, that's Proverbs, he's assuming Proverbs, Yahweh's sovereign rule of the world cannot be reduced to a rigid retribution formula. That's what Job is dealing with. But it puts it in the frame of a story. So it's this epic narrative with a lot of poetry, debates, but it's in the frame of a story. Why is it in a story? Um, I, I can capture it with a video I want you to watch. Everyone loves a good story. How many times has a movie, a book, or a song made you feel something? Something deep and meaningful. Something you maybe couldn't even describe. Stories have the power to take us on a journey. They show us new places and introduce us to new people. And yet, the best stories are the ones that show us something about ourselves. They show us who we are and who we could be. God's story is like this. It is a story full of murder, mystery, action, miracles, war, drama, and love. It is about how he created the earth and the sky and people. It tells of a great and faithful creator who reveals the most beautiful way to live 
a life of love, peace, and sacrifice. If you will dive into the story and allow God to speak to you through the story, you will see things about God and yourself that you've never seen before. The book of Job is a story. <laughs> it invites you into the story to be a participant into the story. However, I want to make one caveat. None of us, none of us get to be Job. Because Job was a righteous man, blameless in all he did. That's none of us. You know who we are? We're Job's friends who think we've got the world figured out and we've got God figured out. And we are trying to make a case for how the world works the way that it is. We're not Job. All of the suffering that we experience is because we have mostly made foolish decisions in our lives. There are times when we don't understand why it's coming down the way that it does. And to that degree, I guess we can be like Job. And to this degree, I think we can be like Job as well. When our boys were uh, younger, particularly Jordan, who was much of a talker, there were times when we had to tell Jordan, we're having a talking timeout. You're trying to negotiate this thing. You're trying to figure this all out. We're having a talking timeout. At the end of the book, Job is put in a talking timeout. They've tried to figure it all out, and God finally says, I'm done. And Job understands, he remains silent, and he submits to God's will. <laughs> That's what's going on in this book. I've got a chart out there at the Connection Center. Um, and and the, the book begins with a prologue, a story that we know. Job is a sex, successful man, and everything is taken away from him because God and, and Satan are in heaven dealing uh, with each other. I'm going to deal with that. Then Job is going to lament for an entire chapter. Um, that's going to end at the end of the book with this epilogue where everything is restored back to Job. But back at the beginning of the book, there's a lament where Job says, uh, you know, I, I've lost everything. This is, I, I don't understand it. And his wife says, you should curse God and die. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue to praise him. And then the whole middle of the book, this huge section in the middle, is a bunch of debates with Job's friends. They are trying to help him figure it out. And they're trying to say this, Job, everything's gone wrong because you did something wrong. There is retribution in the world. There's cause and effect. It's clear. You push the domino, it all falls. You've done something wrong. We just have to figure out what it is. And Job keeps saying, no, I didn't do anything wrong. And they're trying to help him fix it. I've got an article with unbelievably small text out there at the Connection Center by Eugene Peterson. In it, he says this, sufferers attract fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. Anybody experience that? When you're going through difficult times, there are lots of people who are going to help you fix it. And for the most part, we just need people who are going to sit there and, and, and sit in it with us. <laughs> After the debates, Job's actually going to make his case. Job is going to say, here's what I think is going on. I'm still innocent. And in fact, eventually, I want to have my audience with God. Then there's one more friend, Elihu, who's a younger man. 
Um, it, oh, I forgot to tell you, there's a, a section that's kind of pivotal in the, mini, in the middle where Job is talking about wisdom and how he says, I'm looking for wisdom, but it can't be found in this world. Only God knows it. I'm going to show you all of this in the book. Then Elihu, this young guy, is going to come back, and he's got a huge section in there. Job doesn't respond to him. God doesn't respond to him. It almost is like this. Job's other three friends are older, seasoned. They've, they've worked with the world, and they say, here's how you can figure this all out. Job says, that's not working for me. <laughs> I want to hear it from God. And then young Elihu shows up, and, and Elihu says, hey, I've got it all figured out. Because he's young, he's impetuous, he kind of He kind of thinks, as a young person, I know how the world works. But he doesn't say anything new. He says the same thing that the other three guys say. Nobody responds to him, not Job, not God. But then God is going to respond. And here's what Yahweh is going to say. Yahweh is going to say, I'm the creator and the giver of life. You can't understand me. So I'm putting you in a talking timeout. Your questions are fine. But eventually, your questions got a little aggressive, and we're not going to deal with that. So let's move into the things we've been dealing with. Some of this is going to be easy with Job, because the answer to all these questions are, we don't know, okay? So just prepare yourself. We're going to move really fast here. Um, First question is this. Um, When and where did Job live? We don't know. We don't know for certain when or where Job lived. However, some clues point to a very early date for when he lived, and a later date from when it was written. So it looks like he lived, the story takes place early, but it was probably written much, much later after the time he lived. Um, Dan Estes says this, many of the details of the book seem to forget, fit best the patriarchal age of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For instance, the divine names El, Elo, Shaddai are used throughout most of the book, and those are the patriarchal names that, God, that they use for God. And Job's possessions closely resemble the holdings of the patriarchs, and his lifespan is comparable to them. So it seems like he lived during the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, back in those days. Um, but the book would have been written a little bit, early, a little bit later. When and where did Job live? He's, Job is from the land of Uz. It occurs several times in the Bible. The Net Bible says that it's maybe up in Syria or probably more likely the area of Edom that is just southeast of Israel. Okay? But we don't really know for sure where this is. Next question. Who composed Job? Answer, we don't really know. We don't know who wrote the book or when it was composed. But it was likely uh, composed later in the Old Testament timeline when the wisdom literature was flourishing. It seems certain to have been written after the book of Proverbs. There's this time in history where collections of wisdom literatures are taking place. Um, this is not true only in Israel, but in, um, in Egypt in particular. People are collecting all of these wisdom books. And it's probably during that time that the book of Proverbs is assembled And everybody understands, okay, this is how it generally works, but what about this story of Job? And Job is written to be put into the collection um, so that it it shows exactly what is going on there. So uh, basically the reason I have it on the chart way over there is because historically it fits over there, but literarily it's the poetic and wisdom books. So now we have a question. (laughs) Where were the author and his audience? Answer, we don't really know. The author and his audience are either living in the United Kingdom during the time of Solomon because he's a collector of this wisdom stuff. 
Um, or perhaps later during the reign of Hezekiah, because the book of Proverbs tells us that there's also a collection of Proverbs made by Hezekiah. Okay, so Job probably lived back when Abraham lived. But this book is put together and assembled probably during the reign of Solomon or after when collections of wisdom literature is taken. And all of that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why was he writing? Now I can get to a little more clarity. (laughs) He's writing to help the covenant community deal with the realities of life in light of the teachings of Proverbs, which are a general guide, but can't fit every situation. Dan Estes says it this way. The book of Job then serves to supplement the traditional wisdom taught in Proverbs by directing the reader to trust in Yahweh, even when he does not seem to act according to his standard pattern. The standard pattern is, by the way, exactly what the friends and what Elihu says. Because the standard pattern is this. If you act wisely, life will go well for you. And if you act foolishly, life will not go well for you. That's the standard pattern. And if you're a wise person, you will operate that way. The problem is the friends, they are saying this is a rigid pattern. And it explains everything. And the book of Job comes along and says, no, there are some exceptions to that. Again, Dan Estes says, the book is also written to teach that humans are limited in their knowledge of what Yahweh is doing. We don't know what God is doing. Yes, there's some general patterns, and the wise person aligns themselves with that. We'll get to that when we get to the book of Proverbs. But there are some exceptions to this. And the exceptions are sometimes things happen that we absolutely can't account for. So let's get into the content of of how this is presented and what exactly is being presented. The outline is pretty simple. There's a prologue that's a narrative of how we got into this situation. And how we got into this situation is um, this thing that happens in heaven between God and, and the Satan. He's In the Old Testament, he's the Satan. It's a title for him. His name isn't Satan. He um, his name is Lucifer. He, he, he's Lucifer. He's the Satan. He's the accuser. That's what the, the title means. And, and God and, and um, I'm going to show you, God and, and the Satan are in heaven. And they're basically, God says, hey, I'm betting on Job. Have you checked him out? And the Satan says, let me at him. Um, then Job suffers. And then there's this series of dialogues that's going to take place. Job and his friends, and and his friends and Job are going to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Then finally, Job is going to say, I've had enough with you guys. Here's my deal. I need to talk to God. Then Elihu, the young guy, shows up and he says, hey, I got it all figured out. And he adds nothing new to the conversation. Then Yahweh's going to respond. And he's going to set it all straight. (laughs) In the end... Job understands, he sits quietly, and he says, I don't understand, you do, I stepped over a line, but I understand I need to quietly and humbly submit to your will. Let me, let me take you through the narrative. Um, Job is a full Proverbs man. He, he, the words used to describe Job are the u- words that are kind of everything in the book of Proverbs. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Read Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. That's Job. Job epitomizes the person who's living out Proverbs. 
So then the problem is going to be, if he's living out Proverbs, why did all this bad stuff happen to him? And here's the answer. We don't know. But we can trust God. Job is a full Proverbs man. And now there's a throwdown in heaven. The Lord says to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. By the way, this is troubling if you think about it for just a minute, that in heaven, Satan has access as the accuser. And every now and then, Satan is not going, hey, I'm going after this guy. Every now and then, it seems like God says, have you thought about Troy over there? You've left him alone for a long time. My money's on Troy. How about it, Satan? Satan takes him up. (laughs) Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. Um, Satan says, he's only following you because you bless him. He doesn't really love you with all of his heart. By the way, think about that for a minute. How many of us would be taken down right then if all the blessings were taken away? All of the things that we know happen in the story, um, um, we, we see them taking place. There's a sequence of things. Everything is taken away from Job, his possessions, and then finally his health, um, his family's gone, everything is gone. And, and Job eventually gets to the place where he says, you know, I, I, I've had enough. Um, in chapter 6, he's going to say, all I want is an answer to one prayer, a last request to be honored. Let God step on me, squash me like a bug, and be done with me for good. I'd at least have the satisfaction of not having blasphemed the holy God before being pa- pressed past the limits. Here, early on, he's going, I don't understand this. I just, God, I need an answer for you. Why is this happening? And God, go ahead and just squash me out. I'm I'm not going to blaspheme you, but I really want an answer. I want an answer so badly. Um, He says, where's the strength to keep my hopes up? What future do I have to keep me going? Do you think I have nerves of steel? Do you think I'm made of iron? Do you think I can pull myself up by my bootstraps? I don't have any boots. I'm at the end of my rope. God, I've got nowhere I can look except to you. So Job gets to the end of it. All this stuff is taken away, and he says, "I, I can't figure all this out. And his friends give him all this advice, and he eventually gets fed up with his friends. I've had all I can take of your talk. What a bunch of miserable comforters. If there's no end to your windbag speeches, what's your problem that you go on and on like this? If you were in my shoes, I could talk just like you. I could put together a terrific tirade and really let you have it, like they're doing to him, saying to him, you're such a sinner. Just go ahead and admit it, Job. This is happening because of your sins. But I'd, I'd never do that. I console and comfort and make things better, not worse. I'd just sit with you. So he's basically saying, I'm, I'm tired of my friends. They're not really friends. He's trying to figure it all out. His his friends are giving him uh, advice back and forth. Eventually, he's going to still stay strong. Still, I know that God lives, the one who gives me back my life. And eventually, he'll take his stand on earth, and I'll see him even though I get skinned alive. (laughs) It may go all bad for me here, but I'll eventually see God, and it'll all make sense. I will see God myself with my very own eyes, 
Oh, how I long for that day. I want to figure this all out. In chapter 28, there's a real turn. After all the debates have taken place, Job starts his monologue with this, um, boy, it's a great chapter. I encourage you to read chapter 28, read it well. Um, He he basically says this, I look all over the world and I can't figure this all out because wisdom can't be found here in the world. Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth and it cannot be found in the land of the living. Figuring this out won't happen here. But God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. I'm not going to find it here, but God has got it figured out. That's the key, by the way, I think, to this book. There are exceptions to the retribution rule, but we're never going to figure it all out. God understands it, and we're never going to get it figured out here. But Job, in chapter 31, in his monologue, he's eventually going to ask for an audience with God. If I have walked with falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in the honest scales, and he will know that I am blameless. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. God, I want to see you. (laughs) Where are you? (laughs) This is, I think, where he stands and maybe steps over the line. Um, it's not what caused all the stuff at the beginning. We know there was something going on in heaven and that only God understands the purpose of it. But Job says, God, I'm demanding an answer. Then the words of Job ended. So God responds. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of a whirlwind, out of a storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans uh, with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. This is perhaps, Cyrus Gordon would say, a reference to ancient belt wrestling, where it's kind of the ancient version of MMA in in the octagon, okay? What you do is you tie one end of a belt around one person. There'd be a long string and then the other end of the belt went around the other person. And um, brace yourself like a man was the phrase of, let's tie up and last person standing wins. God says this to Job. By the way, do you want to identify with Job now? Where God says, okay, we're in the octagon, last man standing wins. You know who's going to be standing at the end of this? Only God. (laughs) And God's going to respond by saying this to Job repeatedly. It is a blast from a whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or um, what, what ha, on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who created all this stuff? You, Job? Not you, me. I'm the creator of the world. I am the sovereign creator of the world. He's got a whole chapter where he rants about that. Then he moves into another chapter and he says this, and I'm the gracious giver of life. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you know when the doe bears her fawn? Do you know the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down, bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. I created the world and I understand life. I'm the creator and I'm the life giver. I am strong and I am beautiful. I am um, sovereign and I am good. (laughs) that's what Job, God is saying to Job. And then he's going to say, not only am I sovereign and good, not only am I the creator and the life giver, but you're never going to figure me out. In chapter 40, he does some really interesting things. (laughs) 
He says, he's going to tell him, I'm inscrutable. He's going to talk about the hippo first. It's called the behemoth. By the way, I'm going to do away with two things. We could argue, I could talk about it and convince you of this. These are not dinosaurs, behemoth and leviathan. They're not dinosaurs and they're not mythical animals. Other people have used them as mythical animals. This is a hippo, okay? So I want you to think about the hippo as I'm describing this. Look at the behemoth, the hippo, which I made uh, along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. The bones of its tubes like uh, bronze. Its limbs like rods of iron. He goes on to continue to describe the hippopotamus. Okay, I want you to think hippopotamus. And then he concludes this way. It ranks first among the works of God. It's my favorite. I created everything. And I gave life to everything. And by the way, check out the hippo. He's my favorite. You think you're going to figure me out? That's my favorite. Would you have ever thought that was my favorite? It's my favorite. And if that's not enough for you, think about this. Think about a crocodile. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose and pierce its joy like a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you can take it as a slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? (laughs) I think God has a sense of humor. Are you going to take this home for your girls? Are you going to put a a, a ring through its nose and take it home? (laughs) Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you laid a hand on it, you'll remember the struggle and never do it again. (laughs) Oh, God, you're so funny. You like hippos, and you're asking me if I want to bring a crocodile home for my girls. Uh, No. God says, so you think you're going to figure me out? Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Why? Because you laid the foundations of the earth. You know when the mountain goats give birth, you like hippos, you understand crocodiles, and I don't get it at all. So I'm done. What's the message of Job? The author recorded Job's experiences as he learned how to properly respond to Yahweh in submissive trust in order to show individual Israelites that they must trust Yahweh regardless of circumstances since a sovereign and life-giving God is in control of everything, yet inscrutable. When life's going on, a lot of the book is about life and everybody trying to figure it out. At the end, God says, I created the world, I give life, you'll never figure me out, I like hippos. That's what God says. Danny Hay says, the book of Job deals with the difficult question of how we as wise, godly people are to handle great tragedies in our life that seem to be unfair or without any logical explanation. There are four interrelated theological conclusions emerging from the book. God is sovereign. We're not. God knows all about the world. Well, we actually know very little. God is always just, but he doesn't always explain his justice to us. And God expects us to trust in his character and his sovereignty when unexplained tragedy strikes us. That's very, very well said. So what do we do with all this? What, what can we do? Um, this fits, I think, um, as a, a corrective to um, the sufficiency of human wisdom. You think you can figure it out? Here's a bunch of guys that tried to through the whole book, and they can't figure it out. And it's a forced encounter with the sovereignty and inscrutability of God. God ties Job up and says, you listen to what I'm saying. 
You didn't create, I did. You don't give life, I did. And I like hippopotamuses, and you can't control a crocodile. And Job says, okay. (laughs) I'm quiet. I submit. God is sovereign in heaven and on earth. He's sovereign up there with the Satan. And I don't understand why all that's going on. But I know God's sovereign. God's inscrutable and worthy of our worship and trust. So live wisely and trust God. Live wisely. Live by Proverbs. Trust God in that. But live humbly and know you're not going to explain everything. So here's some next steps for us, okay? Embrace wisdom as a pattern for living in this world. We're going to get to it. Live by Proverbs. Embrace wisdom. If you make wise choices, life will go better for you. If you make foolish choices, life's going to go bad. Embrace humility in your cry for understanding. Don't step over the line. The questions are okay. God never rebukes um, Job for the questions. He only rebukes Job for the demandingness. The questions are fine. (laughs) And embrace patience in the midst of your confusion. We're not going to figure it out here. Job is not like any of us in this room. He feared God. He obeyed his commandments. He shunned evil. He lived wisely. He was the one guy that when Satan was in heaven, God says, check him out. And it seems like the Satan was basically saying, no, I wouldn't have a chance with him. But he's still not the one who could redeem us. Because even if you had it together like Job, you know what we still need? We still need Jesus. We still need Jesus. Even if you were like Job, and none of us are. Even if you were like Job, we need what we're going to remember here today. We need to remember that ultimately, it's not us getting our lives together like Job, or figuring it all out like his friends. Ultimately, what really anchors us and orients us is that God is sovereign and he takes care of it. And he did that through the death and the resurrection of his son. Father, we thank you for the provision, not of laws for how to live, wisdom for how to apply the law, but provision that came through your son, Jesus Christ, for our redemption. Help us to remember it well. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen.